0: It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas.
1: This part of Mexico had long been an area, where rule of law is very weak, where corruption of authorities is pervasive, where the local communities uh, resent intrusion of the state.
0: This is Vanda Felber-Brown.
1: I'm a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and a lot of my work centers on Mexico on crime, criminality, security, public safety responses to criminality in Mexico.
0: Vanda has been closely observing Mexican organized crime for close to 25 years. But about a decade ago, both Mexican and American conservation groups asked her to look into the illegal trafficking of Totoaba. As we discussed before, the totuaba is a large species of croaker with a swim bladder that's believed to cure all kinds of ailments.
1: The bladder from the large females that's particularly desirable can reach very large uh, proportions and can be selling for tens of thousands of dollars per kilo up in Chinese retail markets.
0: Totoabas are caught using gill nets, the massive stationary nets that have been devastating to the already endangered vaquita porpoise, as well as other marine creatures like sea turtles and sharks. The illicit trade in totoaba swim bladders really picked up about a decade ago when China's own croaker species was almost completely wiped out and the market shifted its focus to Mexico. It was then that that noticed another shift in the upper Gulf of California.
1: Chinese traders would go right into Santa Clara, San Felipe, and directly deal with local fishers and organize them for catching, for poaching the totoaba. And they dictate to the local communities that they have to sell to them. So both of the cartels, particularly Sinaloa, are intensely trying to establish monopolies over Fishing, legal and illegal, that goes way beyond the totoaba.
0: I'm Ruxandra Guiri, and this is The Catch, a series from Foreign Policy. This season, we've come to the upper Gulf of California, where illegal fishing is threatening the life of the vaquita, the world's smallest porpoise, and the lives of many traditional and artisanal fishers. Today, episode four, The Cartel of the Sea. We'll look at the conditions in the upper Gulf of California that have allowed the cartels to embed themselves into nearly all aspects of the fishing industry. We'll talk about the weak response from the Mexican government in rooting out the cartels, and we'll hear what, if anything, can be done about all of this. A little later on, you'll hear from my conversation with Wanda Felba Brown, but first I want to share my own experience not with the cartels, but interacting with the local fishers whose lives have been completely altered by their presence. So we return now to my tour of the upper Gulf of California, where I'm alongside journalist Ernesto Mendez and marine biologist Alex Oliveira. We're starting our day like we have so many others on our trip, Aboard our rental car with Alex at the wheel and Ernesto as his co-pilot, and I'm sitting in the back seat. Our trip to the upper Gulf of California has meant driving for hours on end, mostly for safety reasons. Ernesto and Alex tell me that we must be careful not to draw any attention to ourselves since these fishing communities have been infiltrated by organized crime. For example, we never drive at night And we leave very early in the morning before the sun comes up. Only our contacts know that we are a couple of journalists and a marine biologist. But I didn't understand just how serious violence is in this part of Mexico until we reached the Golfo de Santa Clara and met Carlos Tirado, the local fisher's leader who runs a large shrimp operation and is an advocate for sustainable fishing in the area. We spent some time with him in episode two, when he was telling me about how vaquita sometimes winds up as bycatch. Today though, I want to focus on another part of our conversation, where he told us about the enormous pressures facing fishers. Not just to provide for themselves, but also to fly under the radar of the cartels. Back in the Golfo de Santa Clara, Tirado drove us past the main seafood processing plant which used to buy shrimp from all the fishers in this community. Its store is closed. Here, look, he said, pointing to one of the largest processing plants in the city. All the cold rooms are sitting empty. They process shrimp to send it to the United States. Among other countries, it's about 15 or 20 years old. But the plant was hit hard by the 2018 U.S. embargo, which targeted gillnet-caught blue shrimp, and then by that embargo's expansion in 2020, which made all gillnet fishing in the upper Gulf of California illegal. Now add organized crime to this already strained community, and you can see why there are so many closed businesses everywhere. The Golfo de Santa Clara is located a few hours from the U.S. border, And this makes it attractive for drug traffickers who are looking to smuggle their products north. A couple of weeks before our arrival, heavily armed members of Los Chapitos arrived in the Golfo de Santa Clara to claim this trafficking corridor, or this plaza, as they say here. Local police were nowhere to be seen. So in essence, Los Chapitos won. Los Chapitos are a cell of the notorious Sinaloa cartel. It's run by a few of the sons of the former leader of the Sinaloa cartel, Joaquin Guzmán Loera, also known as El Chapo. El Chapo is currently in jail, but his sons clearly have learned his ways. In the past two years, Los Chapitos have become one of the leading producers and traffickers of fentanyl and methamphetamine that comes into the U.S., and they have expanded their territorial control into the entire Gulf of California region. Like any transnational network of organized crime, they benefit not only from drug trafficking, but also from illegal mining, migrant smuggling, and illegal fishing. The power of organized crime in Mexico is such that some fishers here actually end up working directly for them. Cartels are filling the vacuum left by the Mexican government, They are the ones who are financing fishers in this region so they can pay for their pangas, equipment repair, and gill nets. We keep driving through town and notice the streets are empty. Business doors are shut. It's an eerie feeling, and it's unsettling. Carlos Tirado lowers his voice and closes the windows of his truck when he begins to tell us about what it felt like to witness this in his hometown. There were about 30 trucks, about 15 or 20 days ago, he says. Everyone was armed. This is the sad reality in almost all of Mexico. Organized crime is the big boss. The cartels take over different plazas, and with that come waves of violence that disrupt everyday life and people's ability to earn a living, until a new cartel arrives and takes over that plaza. And then the cycle continues like this, year after year after year. There are limited options. People could run away, and they do. Carlos tells us about some families he knows that literally left their homes and migrated to the U.S. But for those who stay, there's little option but to reconcile with the cartels and try to reason with them. Demand that they let fishers like him do their job, whether their fishing follows the law or not. Totuaba, the croaker fish with a highly desirable swim bladder, is caught around the Golfo de Santa Clara starting in March. But when we visited in December, everyone was focused on shrimp, which again is under the U.S. embargo.
1: After taking us
0: around town, Carlos wants to show us the most beautiful spot in his hometown, a peak at the northwest point of the upper gulf. But there's no actual road to get there, so we're driving over sand dunes. Carlos insists that he show us that view, and I'm begging him not to. I feel like we're going to tip over. Even with his four-by-four truck, he had to make several attempts. When we finally arrive, What we see is so breathtaking, to the point that all my anxiety just falls away. That clear blue sea with calm waters that we've now seen from multiple vantage points. We see pelicans flying low in that coordinated way of theirs. And we spot bangas, dozens of them, anchored as they await their catch. If you didn't know how precarious fishing can be out here, how much power organized crime has, How little the Mexican government does for these people. You might think this is just a beautiful postcard-worthy view. And it is. But I don't just want the postcard view. I need to understand the full landscape. How did it get so tenuous here? And why? That's a question I posed to Vanda Felba Brown from the Brookings Institution. So it would be fair to say that that the one whose boss out in this region as far as, like, fishing as an industry is concerned in the upper Gulf is the cartels.
1: So when one talks with local people, they will say that the narcos or the carteles are taking over legal or illegal fishing. And oftentimes there will be reluctance to specify which groups And it requires some deal of trust and luck and established relations for local people to be willing to put names because people are enormously afraid that they will be subjected to violent response. And many of them have been intimidated, threatened to sell their catch to the cartels. Uh, And other times uh, people simply don't know what the local criminal group is, especially as both of the cartels uh, operate through sets of vassals and proxies and the allegiances are sometimes fluid. So, you know, the Sinaloa cartel, although it monopolizes economies and very much is seeking to do so in illegal uh, and legal fishing in Mexico, often operates through a set of proxies, allies, um franchises, which it uh licenses. And uh, so whom uh, particular local officials deal with might be directly operatives of Sinala cartel, or they might be people that have replaced the cartel der Mar. There might be uh, fo- newly formed lieutenants or actors uh, of the Sinala cartel that are dispatched there. What the Sinaloa cartel does in various fisheries is to send their representatives who monitor and control the community, who tell the restaurants what fish to buy, who tell the processing plant that it has to be processing uh, their fish. But they also send in their own illegal poachers, illegal fishers across from um, Sinaloa.
0: I really would love to hear your sense of what the U.S. embargo, I guess in its first uh, iteration in 2018 and then its expansion in 2020, whether it's helped matters at all. And I guess, um, I know there were a few options there for conservationists and there was a lot of hope in, in the U.S. embargo being a hit to this illegal fishing activity, but what's your sense?
1: Well, I don't think that, unfortunately, the embargo diminished the poaching. However, I do believe that the first embargo and the set of embargoes that Mexico has been facing since uh, has been important in stimulating some kind of interest from uh, the Mexican government to respond. And so it is something that uh, the gringos are shoving down the throats of Mexico and that if only the uh gringo conservationists were not uh mesmerized by the Gulf dolphin, they would have no problems and they wouldn't have to be bothered with the Upper Gulf. Uh so, you know, there was the external pressure often strongly disliked by Mexican authorities and um, sometimes strongly disliked by Mexican communities in the upper Gulf, that has been an important source of continuing to drive conservation and continuing to drive law enforcement. So although we unfortunately cannot say that with the embargo we saw collapse of the poaching and end to the poaching, without the embargo, we wouldn't have even the sporadic and meager response uh, of the Mexican government. Frankly, it was the threat of much broader U.S. seafood embargo on Mexico, not just on the upper Gulf, that uh, forced some actions uh, by Mexican authority to start at all tackling some of the uh, blatant violations in uh, the seafood industry. And clearly, it's nowhere where it needs to be. Uh, But uh, the larger issue is that rule of law has not uh, come to the upper Gulf. It's not because there is now effective uh, law enforcement strategy or because alternative livelihoods, legal economic alternatives have been provided.
0: Thank you so much, Vanda. This has been really, really wonderful. I really appreciate your very holistic look at all of this.
1: Oh, oh, my pleasure.
0: So is the Mexican government capable of taking on the cartels? There are certainly grand declarations.
1: Buenos dias.
0: At the beginning of this year, Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador gave a press conference on security. Vamos a presentar un informe. López Obrador said we're going to present a comprehensive report of all the work that's being done to guarantee peace and tranquility in the country to protect Mexicans. I would like to express my satisfaction that progress is being made on this very delicate and at the same time important issue. During his press conference, López Obrador repeated this several times. Security is the most important issue of his administration. He said the government is working to prevent young people from being recruited by the cartels. They are addressing the causes of poverty and are supporting young people with programs, including giving them a minimum wage. Of course, these wages are nothing like the types of profits many could be making with the cartels. López Obrador was followed by the Mexican Secretary of the Navy, Admiral José Rafael Ojeda
1: Duran. Within
0: the upper Gulf of California, there was practically a group there, which they called the Totuaba Cartel, said Ojeda Duran, and it was possible to dismantle that cartel. Seven elements were arrested, and they're already imprisoned. These members of the Totoaba Cartel, also known as the Cartel of the Sea, were Mexican and Chinese. And apparently, they were the ones who bought the Totoaba bladders from fishers on the beach. The truth is that this announcement from earlier this year is not really news, because these members of the Cartel of the Sea have already been in jail for more than two years, and most of them without trial. Most Mexicans will roll their eyes at these kinds of speeches. They ring hollow. Yes, seven members of the Cartel of the Sea were arrested a couple of years ago, but business is still thriving. Behind each of these cartel leaders, there are three others waiting their turn, ready to become the next big boss. As my travel partner Alex says, these arrests by the Navy did not stamp out the root of the problem. Hoy por hoy, no sé si se atreve el gobierno a entrar al al Golfo de Santa Clara, ¿no?, por los... Right now, I don't know if the government dares to enter the Golfo de Santa Clara, Alex says, because of the violence. This is a sector that feels excluded. And since there's no presence from the authorities, then everyone does what they want. It's true. We didn't see any state presence during our visit to the Golfo de Santa Clara. And after spending the day with Carlos Tirado, the head of the local fishing union, we decided it'd be safer to get on the road while there was still light. A few miles away from town, we see a National Guard checkpoint. They ask us to stop. We tell the agent that we're heading north to Mexicali to stay in a hotel. And just like that, we're waved right through. Nobody checks anything. Ernesto tells me, this is where all the Totuaba goes through. They're supposed to check you. They're supposed to ask you. And the incredible thing is that all the Totuaba passes through here. As we're driving to Mexicali, I can't stop thinking about how precarious life is for many of the fishers we've met in the upper Gulf of California. They're working in one of the most productive regions in all of Mexico, but also one that's increasingly dangerous. They have so little room for error. These fishers receive little support direction or protection from the Mexican government, illegality has become the norm. And given this reality, how can they still be invested in saving the vaquita? Next time on The Catch, can businesses and consumers make a difference? And what happens when they demand more accountability and prioritize conservation in the upper Gulf of California? And that's it for part four of this season of The Catch. Our show is made possible by the readers of Foreign Policy, with additional support provided by the Walton Family Foundation. Our production team includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Maria Jimena Aragón, and Jimena Letgard. Special thanks to our team in Mexico, Alex Olivera and Ernesto Méndez. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a review and subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts, or head over to foreignpolicy.com, where you can listen to our other podcasts and sign up for our newsletter. Thanks for listening. I'm Roxandra Guidi. See you next week.